Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Physicist and futurist Michio Kaku says that formerly the domain of fiction, moving human civilization to the stars is increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. In his book, The Future of Humanity, Michio Kaku explores the process by which humanity may gradually move away from the planet and develop a sustainable civilization in outer space. He reveals how cutting-edge developments in robotics, nanotechnology, and biotechnology might allow us to terraform and build habitable cities on Mars. Then takes us to beyond the solar system to nearby stars, which he says may soon be reached by nanoships traveling on laser beams near the speed of light. And finally, he takes us beyond our galaxy, even beyond our universe, to the possibility of immortality, showing how humans may someday be able to leave our bodies entirely and laser port to new havens in space. Michio Kaku is a professor of theoretical physics at City University of New York, co-founder of Stringfield Theory, and author of several widely acclaimed and best-selling science books, including Beyond Einstein, Future of the Mind, Hyperspace, Physics of the Future, and Physics of the Impossible. And he's a science correspondent for uh, CBS This Morning, host of the radio program Science Fantastic and Exploration. Uh, Dr. Kaku, it's uh, such a pleasure to welcome you to Access Utah. Thank you. Well, glad to be on the show. Uh, so you say that uh, moving beyond Earth, moving entire civilization beyond Earth, is increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. Why a necessity? Well, you know, the dinosaurs did not have a space program. And that's why they're not here today to talk about it. Uh, the dinosaurs didn't know what hit them 65 million years ago. And you realize that 99.9% of all life forms on the Earth eventually go extinct. If you don't believe me, simply dig right underneath your feet, and you'll see the bones of all the organisms that died, the 99.9% that never made it. Now, we're different. We have a big brain. We do have a space program. And perhaps we can avoid the fate of 99.9% of all life forms, because extinction is the norm. We think of Mother Nature as being warm and cuddly, and for the most part, she is. But she can also be indifferent, savage, and wipe out entire species at the drop of a hat. Uh, so uh, you're saying that uh, we have at least a part of the technology, it's, it's, it's right here, it's... it's possible? How close are we to, say, getting to Mars and living there? Well, first of all, just last month, millions of people were riveted with the launch of the Falcon Heavy rocket from Cape Canaveral. Now, why? Because that was a moon rocket. Get this. For the first time in 50 years, we've now launched a moon rocket from Cape Canaveral. And guess how much it cost us? The taxpayers paid nothing. Zero for that rocket. It was a gift from Elon Musk. And just remember that the movie The Martian, starring Matt Damon, that cost $100 million. But to go to Mars with the Indian space probe cost $70 million. So realize that a Hollywood movie about going to Mars now costs more than actually going to Mars. That's how cheap space travel has become. Mm. So economics is a part of this. Uh, by the way, do you think uh, you know the space travel has, in the past, been a you know the entire nations involved? It's a it's, you know it's 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 the taxpayers funding it, and I guess there's some advantages there. Now it's uh, billionaires who I guess have been excited by 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 the dream. That's right. You know, ten years ago, if I were to tell you that a bunch of Silicon Valley billionaires would open up their checkbooks and create a spaceport in Texas, like what Amazon has done. Think about it. The taxpayers are not footing the bill for these developments. These billionaires, when they were children, they read science fiction. They saw Star Trek. And they said to themselves, why not? Why not become a multi-planet species, just in case, just in case something bad happens to the planet Earth? So we see a situation where... Uh, technology has caught up with us, prices have dropped, and China, China has stated that they're going to plant the Chinese flag on the moon. India is already sending space probes to Mars. Who would have thought that we would see a situation like this? Of course, our space program uh, sort of, you know, I don't know, say ran out of steam. We'd <laughs> At least the government lost a bit of interest in 
uh, in it. Um, you say the slack is a bit, perhaps being taken up by these uh, billionaires. Uh, I was reading uh, Kirkus Reviews, a uh, review of, of your book, and uh, the reviewer uh, said that American readers, uh, quoting from the review, may yearn for a Chinese bombshell a la Russia's launch of Sputnik on 57, which spurred us then. You think we need such a spur? Do you think we're okay with Elon Musk and others uh, leading well, the way? Well, as uh, former President Barack Obama said, we need a Sputnik moment. That is, a moment that would galvanize young people. However, as you also know, uh, President Barack Obama canceled the shuttle, he canceled the moon program, and he canceled the Mars program. So there was no Sputnik moment. However, now, with Silicon Valley billionaires coming in, uh, there's a possibility that young people can be energized in terms of exploring outer space again. Uh, I mentioned Jeff Bezos of Amazon.com. He's created his own spaceport in Texas. He doesn't have to go to Cape Canaveral, Florida. He can launch his missiles from his own launch pad, and he wants to create an Amazon service to the moon. So our astronauts can just order an Amazon book while they're on the moon. <laughs> and, and, of course, uh, Elon Musk wants to go to Mars. And so we're seeing now the slack being picked up by private enterprise. And of course, we have to give credit to President Barack Obama. He's the one who opened the doors for private enterprise to, to do what NASA uh, has not been doing. NASA has been criticized as being the agency to nowhere. However, it has the SLS booster rocket. And starting next year, put this thought in your calendar, next year, we go back to the moon. December 2019, an unmanned probe will go orbiting around the moon with the Orion space capsule. Four years after that, humans, humans are going to go back to the moon for the first time in 50 years, and then we're going to build a space station around the moon. This is incredible. And after that, we're going to leap on to Mars. It's important to dream big, isn't it? Uh, um, and you're dreaming big in this book, and you're saying we're closer to our dreams than maybe we think. I, I was interested by this quote from your book. This is James and uh, Gregory Benford, physicists. They said, very little useful science got done in the space station. The station was about camping in space, not living in space. Do we need to dream bigger? Yeah, that's right. You know, the space station was supposed to be a gateway to the stars. It was supposed to be a stepping stone. But instead, it became an end in and of itself. And so it became a wheel that never went anywhere. And realize that technology is catching up now so fast that I think that our grandkids, they have the option of honeymooning on the moon. Instead of simply looking at the moon during your honeymoon, why not visit the moon? Space tourism is a real possibility. Richard Branson, another billionaire, is backing space tourism, along with Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world. And so space tourism may eventually take us to the moon, and maybe after that, on to Mars. How close are, are we, do you think, to, to you know, honeymooning on the moon? You said our grandkids were, were that close? Uh, yeah, because the price has been dropping. You know, to send a pound of anything into orbit around the Earth costs $10,000 a pound. That's your weight in gold. So imagine your body made out of solid gold, and that's what it costs to put you in orbit. Now, because Elon Musk is pioneering reusable rockets, just like used cars, reusable rockets, the price could drop by a factor of 10 down to $1,000 a pound. And that could really open up outer space for tourism, for, for commercial ventures, and make, uh, make uh, us into a space-faring creature rather than simply an earthbound creature. What do you, uh, one of the questions I had going into this, and, and you would address this in your introduction, I'll just ask, what's the role of science fiction? That, that, that's played an important role all along, hasn't it? Oh, oh, yeah, definitely. You know, the science fiction has inspired some of the greatest scientists of all time. For example, the expanding universe was discovered by Edwin Hubble. The Hubble Space Telescope is named after him. But he read Jules Verne as a child. And that set him off to become the greatest astronomer of the 20th century. And then Carl Sagan, another astronomer, read John Carter of Mars. He dreamed of chasing after a Martian princess on the sands of Mars. And then Elon Musk, myself included, we read Asimov as a child, the Foundation series, about the rise and fall of a galactic empire. And that inspired Elon Musk to not just become a billionaire, but a billionaire who opens up his checkbook to create huge rockets. The latest rocket that he's devised is called the BFR, 
B for big, R for rocket, and F for your imagination. That rocket could take us to Mars. I mean, think about that. Here's a private individual who loves space travel so much, he's willing to bankroll rockets to the moon and Mars. You you mentioned the Foundation series uh, that had a big effect on you, Asimov, uh, in, I guess in part or mainly because he was asking really big questions, right? 50,000 years in the future, what will human civilization be like? Uh, that's right. You know, usually science fiction is just shoot them up and you have monsters that you then vanquish. And it gets kind of repetitive after a while. But when I read the Foundation series, I mean, my jaw hit the floor. This was about the rise and fall of a galactic empire when humanity has spread across the galaxy. Now, I'm a physicist now. I realize the enormous problems involved with going uh, near the speed of light. But you see, we have the technology. Uh, my colleague, Stephen Hawking, uh, convinced other Silicon Valley billionaires to back what is called the Breakthrough Starshot to take a chip, to take a chip the size of a postage stamp, hook it onto a parachute, inflate it with a laser beam, and shoot it to the stars. In 20 years, it will reach Alpha Centauri, the nearest star system. And so here's an example, once again, of a private individual stimulated by Stephen Hawking, opening up his checkbook and saying, we want to build the first starship using off-the-shelf technology. You don't need warp drive. You don't need enterprise starships. No, off-the-shelf technology could take the first starship to the stars. I wonder if you'd uh, tell me, you write about this in the introduction. I hadn't been familiar with him. Olaf Stapledon, star maker. This is when, 1930s? That's right. Believe it or not, back in the 1930s, he was a man who envisioned that he could somehow leap across the galaxy and visit, visit these civilizations where we have extraterrestrials. In fact, almost all the extraterrestrials you see in the movies in fine fiction come directly from his novel. He even invented the prime directive of Star Trek, uh, before Star Trek, of course, uh, saying that an advanced civilization may leave a more primitive civilization alone. So he invented that. He invented all sorts of bizarre creatures that we see in science fiction movies today. And so in my book, I have several chapters on what extraterrestrial intelligence may look like. We have discovered that on average, every single star in our galaxy has a planet going around it. Every single one, on average. And there are billions of Earth-like planets orbiting these stars. So the probability that life exists in outer space, I think, is almost 100%. 100%? Why do you say that? Uh, yeah, because there are so many stars out there. In fact, I get a lot of emails from people who say to me, that's old hat. I know they're out there because I've been abducted by flying saucer people. So I tell people that if you've ever been abducted by a flying saucer, for God's sake, steal something. <laughs> I don't care what it is, an alien chip, an alien paperweight, steal something, because there's no law against stealing from an extraterrestrial civilization. <laughs> there's no law against that. And then you have bragging rights, that yes, you have proof, definitive, testable proof, that aliens exist in outer space. Mm-hmm. Um, let's take a break when we come back more with uh, Dr. Michio Kaku. Uh, his uh, latest book, The Future of Humanity, the subtitles Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. And uh, Michio Kaku is author previously of uh, other uh, best-selling books, including the number one New York Times bestseller, The Future of the Mind. And uh, Dr. Kaku says that uh, we are closer than perhaps you have thought uh, to uh, moving human civilization to the stars. It's increasingly becoming a scientific possibility and a necessity. When we come back, I want to uh, talk specifically about uh, about Mars, how uh, you know colonizing Mars would happen. And uh, later in the conversation, uh, this intriguing um, part of the book, uh, he takes us beyond our own galaxy, even beyond our own universe, to the possibility of immortality, showing how humans may someday be able to leave our bodies entirely and laser port to new havens in space. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will with your question or comment, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495, or by email to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. More following this break. 
This is the Management Minute with Professor Scott Hammond. Have you ever had a meeting standing up? If you want a short information-only meeting, that's a good technique. How about a sit-down meeting that lasts for days and discovers and designs a new future for your company? These long dialogues are also a very valuable use of time. The key to a good meeting is to know why you are meeting, who needs to be in the room, and what you want to accomplish. That will help you design how you will get there. You don't use the same map for every journey, and you don't want to use the same meeting format for every meeting. The Management Minute is made possible by the USU John M. Huntsman School of Business One-Year MBA, full-time on-campus in Logan, and professional MBA available statewide. Details at huntsman.usu.edu MBA. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're very pleased today to have Dr. Michio Kaku. He's author of several best-selling books. Uh, the latest one, The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. You're welcome to join this conversation. Hope that you will if you have a question or comment. 800-826-1495. 800-826-1495 is toll-free anywhere you are. And uh, the email is upraxcess at gmail.com. Upraxcess at gmail.com. So, Dr. Kaku, you say that we're closer than perhaps we uh, might have thought to colonizing Mars, you know, making the Martian, the movie, come true. In fact, it's uh, you, you said it's uh, cost less for the Indian government to send a probe than to make the whole movie. Um, so, But you've also said that, uh, you know, with the moon, you go to the moon on Monday and be back on Friday. Not so with Mars. What are some of the problems? Uh, yeah, well, first of all, Mars is a much bigger leap into into the unknown. It would take about a two years, a two years for a complete round-trip journey. However, Elon Musk has said that he could bring it down to a few months. But assume that it's for two years. Uh, we have to battle weightlessness, radiation. But we see, once we get to Mars, we have to make the settlement self-sufficient. So the first thing they're going to do is, well, get solar cells for power. Power is for free because of the sun. But also mining operations. You see, water in frozen form is a valuable source of rocket fuel. You can break it up into oxygen for breathing, hydrogen for rocket fuel, and drinking water uh, for drinking purposes. And so the first thing that uh, astronauts would do on Mars is to get energy from the sun and start mining the ice. And after that, a farm could be set up using genetically modified algae and plants. Plants love carbon dioxide. And guess what? The atmosphere of Mars is almost pure carbon dioxide, and they release oxygen as a byproduct. Now, if you can induce a greenhouse effect and raise the temperature of Mars by 6 degrees, 6 degrees, then the runaway greenhouse effect kicks in, and it starts to terraform itself. That's right. All you have to do is raise it to 6 degrees, and then a runaway positive feedback loop is created, which will then make Mars habitable. In other words, the ice caps begin to melt. The ice caps have plenty of water. Mars once had great oceans, rivers. An ocean as big as the United States used to be on Mars. And so we can recreate these ancient riverbeds, ancient seas, and ancient oceans by starting the melting of the polar ice caps. You can even accelerate this process by launching satellites that'll beam sunlight down to the polar ice caps and accelerate the melting process. And so it's not going to be easy. It's going to be much more difficult than the moon. But I think that in the future, Mars could even become a tourist attraction. Uh, so the, I guess the, for the, the pioneers, uh, what would, uh, how would we start this? Where would, uh, where would the first people there live? Well, the first people would not build a gigantic glass-domed uh, spaceport like you see in the movies. If you saw Arnold Schwarzenegger in Total Recall or, or any of these movies, they always talk about gleam glass dome cities. That comes later. The first thing they're going to do is look at lava tubes. Lava tubes are remnants of ancient volcanoes, and they're caves, ready-made caves, so that you can create an underground spaceport. Now, if you saw the movie 2001, you're, it's kind of impressive that the entire lunar facility was underground to protect you against radiation, 
to protect you against uh, harsh uh, cosmic rays from outer space. So the first thing they would do is to create lava tube uh, caves that would serve as a, um, a spaceport for the first set of astronauts. Um, and you have talked about the fact that we want to make sure before we, especially before we set off this chain reaction to make Mars more habitable, that there isn't, uh, isn't life there that we're going to upset. Uh, that's right. We've looked for microbial life on Mars. We really have. So far, we see no evidence of microbial life. But again, we're going to have to send more unmanned space probes to make sure that we're not going to be destroying any existing uh, microbial life. Now, if once upon a time life did exist on Mars, and Mars gradually lost its atmosphere, then life forms would go to the polar ice caps, where there's still water, and go underground. Now, these are the, exactly the two places that we have not been. We have not been to the polar ice caps because it's too rocky, and we have not drilled underground because our robots are too primitive. But I think that, you know, in the future, we will go to the polar ice caps, and we will see whether or not there's any possibility of life that might exist there. When, uh, you have an idea of a timeline? When do you think of the first humans on Mars, for example? Uh, yeah, NASA has come out with a timeline. Uh, as I mentioned, next year we go to the moon with an unmanned spacecraft. In uh, 2023, astronauts go to the moon. 2026, we have a lunar orbiter that is created, a space station around the moon. 2030 is when we expect to send the first uh, manned mission to, to Mars. But Elon Musk just released yesterday uh, more details of his timeline. He thinks he can go to Mars in, in the, the next several years. Well, we'll see. Um, of course, Mars is much more difficult than the moon. moon is only three days away. Uh, Mars is more like uh, two years away. And so we'll see how things develop. But I think that there's going to be a traffic jam around the moon as more and more companies and spacefaring nations and billionaires build moon rockets. Uh, the Chinese, uh, Jeff Bezos of Amazon, uh, Elon Musk of SpaceX, NASA with his SLS booster rocket, these are all uh, capable of sending payloads and astronauts to the moon. So I think we're going to have a traffic jam around the moon. The, <laughs> that'll be quite the sight. Um, I wonder if we, uh, uh, of course, you know, for for many, many generations, uh, humans have been exploring. There's been an exploring spirit. Um, I wonder if we're going to have to get back to that, because there are dangers, right? I think Challenger and Columbia did, did have an effect. Yes, definitely. In fact, Elon Musk was asked about that. They asked him, since you're bankrolling all these missions, would you, would you volunteer to be on the first mission to Mars? And he said, well, yeah, he'd love to go to Mars, but not on impact. That is, he doesn't want a crash landing on Mars. And so he's been very explicit about this. He says, yes, we are pioneers. And when the pioneers sailed over the Atlantic, there were mishaps and there were fatalities. And so he's preparing the public, saying that this is still a leap of technology. No new laws of physics have to be created. We, we know how to do it. It's just a question of safety and redundancy and making sure that nothing, nothing goes wrong. But uh, he's warned the public that, yes, right now, if you're a pioneer to go to Mars, it's still risky. But I should also point out that hundreds of people have volunteered to be the first people to go to Mars. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this it's has really true. Attracted the public imagination. People are volunteering for the first Mars mission. I wonder. Uh, I'm, you know, thinking now about the Star Trek universe. Uh, Gene Roddenberry had a kind of a, a, well, a very hopeful vision where political divisions were overcome. Um, I wonder if you think that's likely to happen, or is that a precondition for us uh, extending well, you know, way out? Uh, I think a lot of people who watch Star Trek got really inspired. Because here was a spacefaring civilization that explored out of space peacefully and did it with other nations in cooperation. And that was a vision. And we didn't have that vision in the 1960s. Back in the 1960s, it was go to the moon first, beat the Russians. That's not much of a vision. It is a national goal. But now we have visions coming out. Elon Musk wants a multi-planet species. He wants an insurance policy. Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world, 
has said that he wants to create the earth into a garden, a park, so that heavy industry would go into outer space and pollute uh, outside the earth, but the earth itself would become a garden. And so we're now having billionaires drive the space program with a vision. And I think that is very exciting. I think young people can relate to that. Not just the excitement of going into space, like with Star Trek, but just like with Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry said that when he created the Star Trek series, he had a vision, a vision that we could explore outer space peacefully with other nations. And it starts with a dream, right? That's, uh, you know, these Elon Musk and the like are dreaming big. It uh, starts with a dream. Uh, if you just joined us, we're talking with Michio Kaku. He is author most recently of The Future of Humanity. The subtitle is Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond the Earth. Dr. Kaku, before we, we go beyond Mars uh, to the to the stars, I want to come back to Earth. Um, you're, you're talking about the necessity of becoming a multi-planet um, civilization. Uh, I wonder, what uh, first, what worries you about current you know, situation on Earth or what might happen in the near future, and, and what gives you hope? Well, the dangers are both natural, like asteroid impact, which knocked out the dinosaurs, as well as self-inflicted. And we have problems with global warming, which is real. Uh, summers are now one week longer than normal. Every glacier on the Earth is receding, and the polar ice caps have thinned 1% per year for the last 50 years. In fact, uh, our children are going to say, Santa Claus is obviously a myth because there is no North Pole. The North Pole melted in, in your generation. And we have the danger of nuclear proliferation and the danger of uh, germ warfare. And I think that we have to solve these problems on Earth. These are political problems. We shouldn't go to Mars to escape these problems. No, we messed up this Earth. And it's our obligation to clean it up, to make sure that we don't mess up Mars as well when we go into outer space. So, yeah, there are a lot of self-inflicted problems, and we have to deal with them on the Earth. What, uh, maybe you could give us some, uh, some hope. What are, what are you saying that makes you hopeful? Uh, well, what makes me hopeful is, first of all, just the sheer economics of the situation, uh, the fact that prices have dropped to the point where China, India, are now seriously fielding probes to go to Mars and, and uh, the Moon. And uh, that's, that's tremendous. And then also the possibility of an economic gold rush in outer space. You know, year, 200 years ago when Thomas Jefferson signed the Louisiana Purchase, he thought it would take a 1,000 years, a 1,000 years to colonize the Midwest. Forget California. Just the Midwest, he thought it would take a 1,000 years. But what happened was in 1849, we had the gold rush. And all of a sudden, California got, got colonized very quickly. So... Google billionaires now, Google billionaires have said that they want to mine the asteroid belt. And this was set into motion by President Barack Obama. It's called Asteroid Redirect, the policy of trying to rope an asteroid, bring it back to Earth, and then mine the platinum-based rare Earth elements that are worth billions of dollars in these asteroids. So now we have entrepreneurs who say that there's a gold mine out there in outer space. Hmm, interesting. Uh, the the energy, of course, energy problem is uh, is one of the big ones. I wonder uh, what you think. Uh, will we find will renewable be able to to ramp up to solve all of our needs? Will we will we have fusion, say, in our our lifetimes or lifetimes of our kids? Uh, well, I think we will have fusion in uh, Europe, in southern France, in Kardash, France. We have the ITER fusion reactor which we think in the coming decades will give us more energy output than you put into it. Now, I should caution you that we physicists, every 20 years, guarantees that we will have fusion in the next 20 years, and then 20 years later we have to revise our timetable. And so the public is a little bit wary of our predictions. But this time I think it could be for real. The European Union, Russia, the United States are backing this huge $10 billion project called the ITER, and we think it'll attain, attain fusion, in which case seawater, seawater will be the basic fuel that fuels the future. And so we're talking about a future where we use hydrogen as fuel, not uranium. Uranium creates large quantities of nuclear waste and meltdowns. But fusion, which is the power of the sun. Now, not to mention 
um, solar power. The problem with solar power is not the solar cell. The problem with solar power is the battery storage. People forget that. But now battery prices are dropping about 7% a year. And we could see a renaissance in solar power as the cost of battery power drops so that you can store sunlight when the sun doesn't shine and wind power when the winds don't blow. Yeah, that, that is very helpful. Um, we have an email from uh, Carl. Um, Carl says, it was George W. Bush who initiated the end of the space shuttle. So Carl says, after we screw up the Earth, we should go colonize other planets? Question mark. Not only are we the scourge of the Earth, we could become the scourge of the universe. If all species eventually become extinct, maybe we should let that happen and let the Earth evolve again. Maybe a new life form could evolve that would be better than humans. What do you think, Dr. Kaku? Well, it is possible that what this person says will come true, in which case we join we join the 99.9% of life forms that have gone extinct, and maybe aliens from outer space, when they land on the Earth, will find bones of humans and say, what a waste, what a waste. Humans had such promise. They created such a great civilization, and then they messed it all up. Now, personally, I don't like that vision. Now, if the listener likes that vision, then he, of course, should partake of it. But my attitude is, let's fight for it. Let's fight for our right to exist, to create a better world. Let's dream. Let's not get bogged down with the present when we do have all these problems. Let's look toward the future and give our children hope that we can, A, clean up the mess we've created on the earth, and B, have an insurance policy, a backup plan, just in case something goes wrong. Now, there is fatalism. There, there is a, a, a branch of thinking out there that says, well, if all life forms eventually go extinct, so be it. But I'm not part of that bandwagon. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about, uh, this is a couple of mind-blowing things. One is, you talked about, um, you know, if we travel beyond Mars, travel, you know, way out there, it, it takes hundreds of years to get to the get to the stars. And we don't have hundreds of years. And uh, you write about how... You think that uh, we're making progress, may make more progress in extending the human lifespan. It's one way we'd, we could uh, solve that. I want to talk about that um, as well and, and talk about the connectome, a map of the entire brain. And uh, so if we get that, uh, then we could send, I guess, our consciousness out through laser porting. And that's uh, how we could achieve immortality. Talk about a couple of those mind-blowing concepts with Dr. Micho Kaku, author of The Future of Humanity, following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the George S. Eccles Ice Center Spice on Ice Culinary Event and Auction. Tuesday, March 20th, a dining experience prepared and served by Cash Valley Chefs. Table and ticket information available at 435-787-2288 or EcclesIce.com. This is Joe from Lincoln. If every interviewer was as insightful as Jesse Thorne, I would only listen to interviews. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week, I'm talking with Rachel Bloom of Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, plus Gloria Calderon-Kellett and Mike Royce of Netflix's One Day at a Time. That's on the next Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Join us Saturday afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment now with Dr. Michio Kaku. Uh, he is a professor of physics at City University of New York, author of uh, several best-selling uh, books, um, including the New York Times uh, number one bestseller, The Future of the Mind. He's out with a new book, The Future of Humanity. The subtitle is Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. You're welcome to join this conversation at 800-826-1495. That's our toll-free number, 800-826-1495. Or email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We'd love to have your question or comment for uh, Dr. Kaku. Uh, so, Dr. Kaku, you, uh, you have said that the first starship that goes to Proxima Centauri could be the size of a postage stamp. Yes. And to back it up, uh, billionaires have donated $100 million to make this a reality. And we're talking about off-the-shelf technology. We're not talking about warp drive, though I discuss warp drive in the book, you know, being a physicist. This is not exotic. It is possible with known technology. 
and a chip will do it. Now, let's follow Mother Nature. How does Mother Nature spread the seeds of a tree? Mother Nature creates millions of copies of, of seeds and disperses them into the environment. Each one costs nothing hardly to create from a Mother Nature's point of view, but a few of them, a few of them mature to create a tree. That's how Mother Nature propagates plants. In the same way, we can send thousands of these penny chips into outer space. If we lose 99% of them, who cares? If 1% of them reach Alpha Centauri, that would be a gold mine. That would change human history, realizing that we've now taken photographs of another planet orbiting a distant star, and there are billions of them, billions of Earth-like planets out there that have been uh, cataloged. Uh, well, first of all, we've cataloged 4,000 of these planets, about 20 of which are Earth-like, but the galaxy itself could be teeming with intelligent life forms. And in my book, I even categorize the types of civilizations that we may meet in outer space that are much more advanced than us. Yeah, there are three types, right? And, and we're type zero. Uh, that's right. There's type one, type two, type three. Type one is planetary. That is, they control the weather. They control all planetary forces, sort of like Flash Gordon or Buck Rogers. And then we have type two, which is stellar. They play with stars, like Star Trek. So Star Trek would be a typical type two civilization. And then we have type three, which is galactic. They roam the galactic space lanes. They play with black holes. They are immortal. And uh, they've colonized a good chunk of the Milky Way galaxy. And that's type three, like Star Wars would be a type three civilization. And as you can see, on this scale, what are we? Do we play with the weather? Uh, do we play with stars and galaxies? No, we're type zero. Uh, we hardly rate on this cosmic scale, but we're about 100 years, about 100 years from becoming type one. How would an encounter most likely happen, do you think? Well, Hollywood, of course, has a field day looking at this. Uh, some people say that they'll want to uh, uh, destroy the Earth and uh, plunder the planet. But if you think about it, there are a lot of planets out there that are uninhabited, plenty of minerals to plunder. Why bother to deal with the Earth, where we have restive natives? And other science fiction novels say maybe they want to eat us, or maybe they want to use us as batteries or, or made with us. But realize we're not going to be made out of the same DNA. Therefore, they're not going to want to eat us, just like we're not, we don't like to eat rocks. Uh, they're not going to want to eat us because we're not made out of the same, same DNA. Personally, I think that if you walk in a forest and you meet a squirrel or a deer, do you go talk to the squirrel? Well, maybe for a while, but you get bored because they don't talk back to you. And so I think that if aliens ever visit the White House lawn, they may, you know, monitor our TV and radio and conclude that we're like squirrels. That is, we don't have much to say of any interest to them. After all, they're not going to be interested in the Cardassians, right? And so they may simply leave us alone, just like we leave the forest alone. So we, we may not even know it. That's right. That's the weird thing, that in spite of all the stories of flying saucers, we may be visited and analyzed, and we are so primitive, we're so primitive that we don't even know it. For example, laser pointing, as I mentioned. Uh, perhaps we can digitize our consciousness, shoot our consciousness on laser beams to create a superhighway of consciousness across the Milky Way galaxy at the speed of light. We are too primitive to even know that this laser port highway can exist. That's how primitive we are compared to a type 1 or a type 2 civilization. Uh, tell us about this laser porting. Um, you've talked about the connectome, human connectome project. Maybe start there and then how would this work? Yeah, Silicon Valley is now offering uh, for a small price to digitize everything known about you, your credit cards, your uh, the wines you like, the Instagram photographs, videos. And when you go to a library in the future, instead of taking a book out about Winston Churchill, I think people will actually talk to Winston Churchill. Uh, computers will access all his videotapes, his speeches, his memories, his life history. I wouldn't mind talking to Einstein. 
being a physicist, I would love an opportunity to talk to a digitized Einstein. And I think that in the future, we are going to be digitized. That is, we're going to be able to talk to our great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren who would love an opportunity to talk to their ancestors who were digitized in the past. Now, once we can digitize a person, we can send that information on a laser beam to the stars. And we could, in some sense, explore the universe at the speed of light without booster rockets, without laser accidents, without accidents, without cosmic rays and weightlessness and all the problems of space travel. I think this could already exist. I think aliens in outer space probably don't bother with flying saucers. They probably laser port their consciousness across the universe. It's a way of leaving leaving your body behind and the problems there. This is also a form of immortality? Uh, yeah, there are two kinds of immortality. First is digital immortality that I mentioned, which is coming very fast already. Silicon Valley is offering the option of digitizing your digital fingerprint. However, biological immortality is also not out of the question. Uh, we're now digitizing the genome. Millions of old people will have their genome scanned. Millions of young people will have their genome scanned. We'll compare the two and isolate the genes where aging takes place. We've already isolated about 60 genes involved in the aging process. Now, if you have a car, you probably ask yourself a simple question. Where does aging take place in your car? Well, it's the engine. That's where you have moving parts, and that's where you have combustion. Well, where do we have the engine of the cell? That's the mitochondria. Bingo. That's where errors build up in the cell of the body. If we can now use gene therapy to fix the, the broken genes, then in principle we might be able to live forever. Uh, the Greenland shark, for example, lives to be almost 500 years of age. Think about that. We know that because the eyeball of the Greenland shark adds a layer every year, and we can count them like tree rings. And bingo, we find out that the Greenland shark can easily live beyond 400 to almost 500 years of age because they're genetically different from us. But we have the same DNA. So in principle, we might be able to find out why these Greenland shark are more or less immortal. Would uh, That would perhaps cause some problems, wouldn't it, if, uh, if people live longer and longer and then new people are born? Uh, well, actually, it's the opposite. When you look at countries like Japan, that have the world's record for the longest living people, you find that their population is contracting violently. Japan is contracting. Uh, by mid-century, it'll lose about a million people per year in its population. And Europe is next. Uh, Germany, uh, Austria, Switzerland, they're going to see a collapsing population uh, for three reasons. One, children are not being born as much as they used to. People who live long don't want to have that many kids. And second of all, old people. Old people are living a lot longer, soaking up resources. And third, immigration in Japan is very, very low. And so we're watching a train wreck in slow motion. And so I think that could be a paradigm for the United States, that in the future, populations will stabilize and perhaps even get shorter, uh, smaller, as we live longer. So if, we, if we're able to learn this, I guess, technology, learn, gain this knowledge, uh, I suppose you could get to whatever age you wanted to be and then uh, turn, off the, turn off the aging process? Yeah, that's right. I wouldn't be surprised if our grandkids have the option of reaching 30 and then stopping. They may like being 30 for many decades to come. Uh, for example, we know that skin cells um, have a clock on them, after 60 reproductions, they get into senescence and eventually die. In fact, that's one reason why we die. There's a biological clock in our cells. Now it turns out that we can stop the clock. There's an enzyme called telomerase, which allows us to stop the clock, and we can now immortalize skin cells. Now, that verb, to immortalize, didn't exist in the English language until about 10 years ago, when we begin to immortalize skin cells. Now, what's the catch? Uh, there's always a catch someplace, right? The catch is that cancer cells also use telomerase to live forever. 
You see, cancer cells are immortal. That's why they kill you. Immortal cells just keep on re reproducing until they create a tumor, which then kills you. So we have to use telomerase very carefully to make sure that cells don't become cancerous in the process of trying to become immortal. So immortality is not totally out of the question anymore. I wonder, um, with you know, with all the advances that you that you see coming, and um, you know, are are very possible. You say, um, what will the experience of being human be like? It, it sound, with with technology, with advances, it sounds like it might be a very different experience. But I guess in some ways, it might be very similar. What what do you think? I think it's going to be very similar. Uh, you know, when you read science fiction novels and comic books, they predict that in the future, we're going to have gigantic heads and be bald-headed and have tiny little bodies, or we're going to be brains in a vat of liquid, thinking all the time, or we're going to have electrodes dangling from our head. I don't think any of those scenarios are going to be realized. I believe in something called the caveman or cavewomen principle, that our personalities haven't changed for 100,000 years. After food, mates, and shelter, what do we want? We want to look good. We want to look good for that date on Saturday night. We want to have the respect of our peers, and we want to have the admiration of people of the opposite sex. That's hardwired in our brain. Now, how many dates can you get if you're a brain in a vat of liquid? You're a freak. So I think that we will not tinker with the human body so much. Now, we will have the ability to augment our memory, We'll be able to upload memories. We can even do some of that today. Uh, in my book, The Future of the Mind, I talk about how in animals we can already upload memories and download memories. But after we do this, after we augment our intelligence and our memories, and you want that hot Saturday night date, you're going to look normal again because you don't want to look like a freak. And so I think that in the future we will probably not tinker with our basic human form, except maybe make us look more beautiful or, or make us look stronger. Uh, I want to have you talk about warp drive. You mentioned that earlier. Uh, got you a physicist with us. Uh, it's it's one of the really cool things about uh, science fiction. It's Now, warp drive, that doesn't violate the laws of physics, does it? It is possible? Well, it definitely is possible. It turns out that Einstein himself opened the door for warp drive in 1935, when he took two black holes and joined them together at the hip to create a wormhole. Now, a wormhole is a gateway through space and time. It's like a shortcut. Uh, for example, think of the looking glass of Alice. The looking glass of Alice, you put your hand through the glass, and your hand winds up on the other side of the universe. Or think of Wrinkle in Time. Uh, the tesseract in the Wrinkle in Time is the gateway to another universe. Now, of course, you need the energy of a black hole to do this, but that's what the math says. The mathematics says that if you were to fall into a black hole, you may not necessarily die. If the black hole is spinning very rapidly, it'll collapse to a ring rather than a dot. And if you fall through the ring, it's like falling through the looking glass of Alice, that you will not die, but you'll wind up in a parallel universe. So as bizarre as it may seem, this was this possibility was opened up by Einstein himself. The and uh, what else would you say about uh, you know things that Einstein or others you know yourself included have envisioned that maybe we don't think about or maybe we still in our minds put in the realm of science fiction. Well, some science fiction novels go way to the future when the universe itself begins to die. We talked about the death of the Earth. Uh, the sun will eventually eat up the earth, so it's practically a law of physics that the earth will end when the sun itself eats up the earth five billion years from now. But trillions of years from now, the universe will die. The universe is going to become very cold, near absolute zero, and no life form can exist when temperatures reach near absolute zero. Now, at that point, our technology is going to be quite advanced. We'll be type 3, maybe type 4 in our technology. At that point, when the universe begins to die and everything goes dark, all the stars blink out, we have nothing but black holes left in the universe, at that point, I think we should leave the universe. I think we should use this technology to go to a parallel universe. Now, how do we do that? Well, Einstein gives us a picture that the universe is a bubble 
the bubble's expanding, we live on the skin of the bubble, and that's called the Big Bang Theory. But string theory, which is what I do for a living, goes beyond that. String theory gives us the possibility of other bubbles out there, <clears throat> a multiverse of soap bubbles in a cosmic bubble bath of universes. This is called the multiverse. The multiverse is the latest fad in theoretical physics. You can go to any conference, Google that word, and you'll find scores of papers being written by physicists like myself about the multiverse. That <clears throat> Perhaps that explains the origin of the Big Bang. When these soap bubbles collide, or they peel off a baby bubble, that's the Big Bang. So we can even begin to have a picture of what the universe looked like before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Hmm. I just have a minute left. Um, when you're... Your, your writings, including this book, you are, you know, you're dreaming, you're hopeful. Um, it's, it's continual progress. Um, I get, that's, that's a very helpful mindset. I, I wonder, um, you just give me a minute on, on why you, you, uh, you do have well, a very hopeful outlook. Well, first of all, as uh, President Eisenhower once said, uh, generals who are pessimistic never win wars. Only optimists win wars. And I think the smallest unit of history is the decade. Anything smaller than a decade, you have random fluctuations. And when you go back decade by decade by decade to the land of our grandparents, you realize that life was pretty bad back then. People didn't live very long. They only lived to their 40s, and then they died on average. Uh, work was backbreaking. Uh, diseases were everywhere. Epidemics, people feared them. And so I think our life today is almost heavenly compared to what it was for our grandparents. If you don't believe me, talk to your grandparents. Uh, find out what it was like to live in a world without telecommunications, without electricity, without uh, supersonic uh, travel and things like that. And then you begin to realize that, hey, maybe life isn't so bad after all. Well, uh, that's a great place to, to leave the conversation. The new book from Michio Kaku, who's uh, author of many New York Times bestsellers, uh, the latest is The Future of Humanity, Terraforming Mars, Interstellar Travel, Immortality, and Our Destiny Beyond Earth. A great read. It's out now. Uh, Dr. Kaku, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. And the book, by the way, is now a New York Times bestseller. Okay. All right. Joining the, the long list of your books. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and uh, coming up tomorrow, we are uh, going to talk with uh, several high school students um, there's a national high school walkout or national school walkout. It's happening tomorrow um, on the one-month anniversary of the uh, shootings at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. And uh, so we'll talk with several youth participating in that, ask them why they're doing that, and we'll talk about gun violence. That's our program tomorrow. hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, you are now the CEO. What happens next? I was on the sidelines thinking what I would do if I got it. And when I got it, I did it. All 